great to be here with you guys this weekend. Great to have you here in this building. Also great to see people in Los Angeles and the Middle East and Bakersfield and New Jersey and all over the world here with us this morning. Um, it's going to be a great, great time. Devette and Jared both mentioned it, but Jared's my brother-in-law. Some of you may know me from that, but most of you may know me because Jared often tells stories about a three-year-old boy named Dex. This is him. He's mine, okay? I know him, okay? That's, that's my boy. And uh, my wife gave birth to Ivy two weeks ago, and this is my daughter Ivy uh, right here. And uh, I know, I agree. And I miss him already. But my connection to your church runs deeper than just family connection. Uh, nearly 15 years ago when Higher Vision was just starting out and they were doing preview services, I was a youth pastor in Fresno and we took a youth group missions trip of 25 kids down here and we passed out door hangers and flyers all throughout this valley inviting people to a preview service at Higher Vision. That Sunday morning, I think there was 100 or so people there, 25 of which were high school students from Fresno, and they served in kids' ministry and set up and tear down. Uh, and then here you are more than a decade later. Um, it's amazing what God can do when we plant churches. And we're planning Prodigal Church um, this fall, and we couldn't be more excited. Jesus tells us this. It comes out of Luke 15, right? The story of the prodigal son. And uh, Jesus tells this gut-wrenching story of two sons, both separated from their father, one because of his bad deeds and the other because of his good deeds. And at the heart of that parable is that you can get lost in rebellious living like the younger son, but you can also be lost in religious living like the older son and totally miss the heart of God. And yet the father invites us both to the party. And we couldn't be more excited. Uh, starting this church, we really don't think it's just a good idea. We really believe it's a God idea, much like it was for Jared and Devette many years ago. Uh, in planning a new church, it's exciting and um, terrifying all at the same time, but we've been able to kind of uh, take a step back and examine the scriptures and really pray and discern God's heart for prodigal church. And uh, so we want to start from the get-go, kind of laying out some distinctives that we feel God's calling us towards. And so tonight, we want to open up God's, or today, we want to open up God's word and look at some of these distinctives and just see what the Lord might have for each and every one of us. Uh, so we'll dive right in. Point number one in your notes is this. Christ followers should be the most non-judgmental people in the world. Right? We should be. We're not. <laughs> but we should be. Uh, this comes straight from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this. Uh, Do not judge or you too will be judged. And this rings throughout the New Testament. But for, if you were to ask some random stranger on the street, what's the first word you think of when I say the word Christian? Uh, what are they going to say? Is it going to be like spirit-filled or loving? Maybe, but probably not. Often we'll hear a word like hypocritical or judgmental. And at this point in the message, you might be amening going, yes, I agree. Christians, yeah, we got to stop that judgmental thing. But, the, but we might be missing the point here. The point isn't Christians, they're judgmental. The point is I'm judgmental and you're judgmental. And God calls us to something greater. And judgment, it's a really sneaky sin. We don't realize we're doing it. Uh, as a youth pastor in Fresno, we would take uh, a spring break missions trip to Mexico, like Ensenada area, and we would uh, do sports ministry and vacation Bible school and, and service projects. And uh, one particular trip, we had a scouting trip beforehand. So myself and a few staff guys, we went down to Ensenada, talked with the pastors, missionaries, looked at the service projects we were going to do. And we had some downtime, and we wanted to go do a touristy thing. So we went to La Bufadora. Anybody familiar with La Bufadora? 
La Bufadora, translated from Spanish, is the blowhole. Okay, and it's this touristy site just south of Ensenada where the waves crash into these caverns and then shoot up into the air and uh, it's supposed to be amazing. So we got the rental car, we go to La Bufadora, we're all excited, we pull in, get to the parking lot, no one's there. It's like empty. And we're like, this is a little bit eerie and strange. It's supposed to be a touristy attraction. So we park the car and we pay the parking attendant some pesos and uh, uh, we're all getting a little bit of an uneasy feeling, like we're in some kind of a horror movie of some sort, like a tumbleweed goes right past us. And then, then we go down to La Bufadora and we go to watch it and it's like a little drinking fountain, <laughs> okay? Like it doesn't do anything. The waves weren't moving that day. And so we walk back up, we barter for some knickknacks on our way back up through some stores. We get to our car and I start, try and start it and nothing happens. It's on E. It says empty. And I'm like, no guys, we had a half a tank. I know. So now we're a little bit panicky. Okay, so I go up to the parking attendant and I go, hey man, uh, we had a half tank of gas and now it's on empty. What's the deal? You're supposed to watch our car. And he goes, yo no sé, yo no sé. I don't know, I don't know. And I go, oh dude, yo sé, okay. <laughs> you siphon gas from our car. And, and he's like, yo no sé. And now I'm getting protective, like I'm getting in beast mode and I'm trying to protect my guys. And, and I go, no, you siphon gas from my car. You sit on a throne of lies, okay. You want to kill my friends and I. And he's like, yo no sé, I don't know. And a guy pulls up, gets out of his car. Turns out he's a mechanic. So he opens up the hood, opens up the fuse box, you know, fiddles things around a little bit, closes it, asks for the keys. And I was like, okay, <laughs> give him the keys. He starts it right up. I look at parking attendant guy and I go, my bad. <laughs> Lo siento, okay? Lo siento, my bad, I am sorry. I felt so awful that I, that I took all of my judgments in this situation, all of my preconceived ideas and fears and put it onto someone who's completely innocent. If I were to say, you know, do don't judge a book by its cover, the cliche police would burst through those doors and arrest me right now. But Christians, we often don't, it's not just appearance we judge by. Uh, if, if someone doesn't go to church for a few weeks, well, they must be hitting the bottle. <laughs> or if someone says, well, my marriage is going through a little bit of a rough patch, we go, someone's getting cheated on. And we say these things or we think these things or if someone's going through something and, and, and is making a bunch of bad decisions, we treat them differently than they would if they were to project themselves that everything is good, all is well. And I just want to let everyone know that the church should be a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. We've all got stuff, right? We've all got dirty laundry. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. None of us has it all together. God comes in and says, agree with me that every person you see was worth me dying for. First Corinthians 2, Paul says this, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was a decision he made. He resolved it in his heart to view people, to view everyone the way God views them. Here's one practical way I've fallen short of this. Maybe you too. Picture yourself at the mall. I was at your mall last night. It's, it's awesome. And uh, say you've got some time to kill. So you get your Orange Julius. You pop a squat on a bench. What do you do? You start doing this little activity that we like to call people watching. Okay? And if you're not familiar with this activity, it's just as fun as it sounds. Uh, you just watch people go by, but that's not all. 
Uh, in people watching, you're also commenting on their lives in your mind as they walk by. You're laughing because you do this as well. So you see a sweet old couple. Oh, that's a sweet. They have such a glow about them. They must love Jesus. Yeah. Another guy walks by with a tank top. Okay, tank top guy. We get it. You work out. You're a big deal. You don't need to draw attention to yourself. Oh, what a sweet smile that lady has. Another guy, dude, you really need the extra large fries and the burger man lay off. Another guy's wearing a Christian t-shirt and he's got a Bible in his hand. Oh, you Mr. Spiritual over there. I bet you just walk around judging people all the time. And here I am doing the exact same thing. Now, I feel like I'm a pretty good guy, but inside my head, there is a gossip column, a nonstop gossip column, a commentary on the life of every person who walks by. And Jesus calls me to wake up to my thoughts. He calls us to wake up to our thoughts. We're usually not aware of our thoughts. They kind of run on autopilot. But in the process of letting God into our thought life, he helps me come to the realization that what I'm doing is judging. And it's a sinful activity. And it is sinful activity. What would it look like for us to sit on the bench at the mall and rather than spin stories in our head and judge, but rather bless? God, I pray for that guy. I pray for his family. I pray that you'd bless them. I pray for you provide for them financially. Bless him. Bless his kids in Jesus' name, God. He was worth you dying for. What if we were to do that? If we were to kind of live that posture, if we were to view people through the lens of the cross, it would not just change their lives, it would change our lives as well. God answers those. God answers. And us living in the reality just might change others. To follow Jesus is to let God be judge. Now, there are lots of reasons why we struggle with this. And one of the main reasons we can see is from modern psychology. It's called attribution theory. In attribution theory, it tells us that we attribute to ourselves better motivations than we do for other people. So I think the struggles that I have, I have reasonable explanations for them. The struggles that you have, well, it's your fault, <laughs> right? Did you gain weight? Well, you're a lazy bum. You overeat. Did I gain weight? I have a metabolism issue, okay? I'm big boned. It's genetic. Uh, uh, did you, do you have a screaming child at the store, at the grocery store? You have a screaming child? Your kid's going crazy at the grocery store? You're a bad parent, aren't you? Do I have a screaming kid at the grocery store? No, he's just tired. He didn't get a nap today. This is attribution theory. And we do this all the time, and it's rooted in the sense that I have to feel better about myself and part of that is pushing down others. And as Christians, we're called to look at others through the lens of the cross. For followers of Jesus, we bless, we don't judge. The guy who runs our slides, um, our media at Prodigal Church, uh, is covered head to toe in prison tattoos. There's a good reason for that. He was in prison. And, and he fell in love with our church. He wanted to get baptized. We had a baptism service coming up, but there was one problem. Every time he attended our church, his ankle monitor would ping his parole officer. Uh, state law says that, and we meet at a school. And so state law says uh, they can't tell him that he can't go to church, but they can tell him he can't go to our church. A unless the principal of the school signs this, has, writes this letter saying that it's okay. And so three, we find this out three days before our baptism service. And so uh, we're praying. We meet with the principal. And the principal said, Pastor John, if he's good in your book, he's good in my book. And he signed the letter six minutes before the weekend deadline. 
And can I just tell you that there's almost nothing more powerful than a dude getting baptized with his leg outside the baptismal because of his ankle monitor? It was unbelievable. The church erupted. It was beautiful. As Christians, we should be the most non-judgmental people on the planet. Number two, Christ followers should be out there, not just in here. The life of Christ, you see him going after the lepers, the outcasts, the adulterers, and he was often treated as one of them. New Testament scholar uh, J.K. Johnston studied the Gospels and he asked the question, where do we find Jesus meeting with people, interacting with people? So we looked through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he found all these interactions, and this is what he discovered. Six were in the temple, four were in the synagogues, 122 were people in everyday life, mountains, roadsides, homes, lakes. We've got to be out there. It's not about the church. It's about being with people in the mess of life out there. Don't invite people to church. Invite yourself to leave church and be with the people. Now, Pastor Jared's not going to like that. Also invite people to church, okay? (laughs) Inviting people to church is a good thing, but also invite yourself to leave the church and be with people in the wild outside. We gravitate towards people that are just like us, and that's natural, It's just not gospel. It's not what we see in Jesus. We like to picture Jesus in many ways. Like if Jesus went to our high school, we think he'd be very popular. He would have been like, you know, football star, valedictorian. We think Jesus would have been homecoming king. And I I Google searched Jesus homecoming king just to see what would come up. And I got this, but this is not Jesus. This is Jesus, okay? (laughs) Jesus, congratulations, buddy. Great job. I think that is us injecting more grandeur into the Jesus' background than it actually merits. It also reveals that we're still influenced by the world's standards of judgment and its concern for prestige. Jesus probably wouldn't have been homecoming king. Isaiah tells us this in chapter 53. He grew up before him like a, sh- like a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was a carpenter. Uh, The Greek word is tecton. Uh, Secundus, who was an Athenian orator, was mocked and made fun of, and he was called a wooden nail because he was the son of a carpenter. In in general, a tecton, a carpenter, that was your simple lot in life. You could never ascend anything great. This was the culture in which Jesus was immersed. He grew up unattractive, simple, and he spent time and loved those on the underside of society. He hung out with sinners. He was accused of being a sinner because he hung out with them. He was friends with them. And his most harsh rebukes weren't for the sinners. It was for the religious people who were rebuking all of the sinners. We've got to get it out of just the church and be out into the world to be the church. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Galatians 2. And there's a lot here. Um, and we'll unpack it in a second. When Cephas, which is Peter, this is Paul writing, he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So Paul's writing and he says, when Peter, the leader of the church, was in Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, 
You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, there's a lot in this passage that I want to unpack, but Paul's saying that he ran into Peter in Antioch and he stood opposed to him. Because when certain conservative religious people came from James, Peter changed his behavior. He used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to eat like the Gentiles. But when all these religious people show up, he began to withdraw, distance himself. I wonder if you were one of those Gentiles, how that would make you feel. Peter begins to barricade himself with the religious elite. And Paul says he's being hypocritical. And what does he say to Peter? Does he say, you're being prejudiced? You're being racist? You're being an elitist? You're being a snob? No, he doesn't say any of that. All of that very well may be true, but that's not what he says. What's he say? He says, you're not acting in line with the gospel. He says, Peter, you're not acting in line with the gospel. The, the Greek translation of this word here is orthopedeo, means to walk a straight course. To walk a straight course, to act uprightly. It comes from two words, ortho, which straight or upright, it's where we get the word orthopedics, and poes, which means feet, right or correct feet. He's saying you're not lined up. He doesn't say you're being an elitist, you're being a snob. He says you're not walking in line with the gospel. Your footing is all wrong. Peter be tripping. <laughs> and when we're immersed with only the religious, with only the elite, never with the down and out in our world, never with the oppressed, never with the lonely, never with the poor, never with the sick, we are also tripping. Our footing's all wrong. In 1989, I, uh, my parents moved us from Illinois to Fresno, California. And I was in third grade and I was getting ready to go to my first day of school. And many of you know this, if you have kids, first day of school, you wanna make a good impression, you wanna get some new friends. And so what do you do? You lay out your outfit the night before, okay? And you pick a winner. And I picked a winner, okay? I picked black acid wash jeans with a red striped shirt, okay? And that was baller back then, okay? So I, I get my, ready for my first day of school. I put on my clothes. I'm ready to go. I go to school and the outfit doesn't work, okay? I come home, no friends still. Little bummed. So that night, go home, take a shower, throw my clothes on the ground, go to bed, wake up the next morning, put on the same pair of acid wash jeans from yesterday and a new shirt. No one's gonna know. What I didn't realize was, hidden in the pant leg of my jeans, was my blue Smurfs underwear from the day before. It was like a scene from a movie. We're waiting in line to go to class and someone says, what's that? And pulls out from my pant leg, my chonies from the day before and goes, ew, throws them, lands on my face. Everybody's pointing and laughing and I just cried. I, there I was holding my underwear in my hands while everyone laughed. Tears were coming, there's nothing I could do. I just turned and ran, it was horrible. I cried so hard that I had to wipe my tears. And then I cried all the more because I realized I just wiped my tears with my underwear from the day before. It was awful. You know what it took for me to feel loved and accepted at my new school where I had no friends? It took other kids leaving their comfort zone to be with someone who was alone, to be with someone who had no friends. It took people who had friends to reach out to someone who had none. Is there someone in your life that you know God is calling you to reach out to? And it's gotta be uncomfortable. 
it's more comfortable to just stay the same, to stay with your own group. I'm good with my relationships, yet God calls us out into the world to make new ones, to love people and to show and share the love of Christ in a new way. A friend of mine is really into aquariums, and he began to tell me that one of the most popular aquarium fish is a shark. And I go, that doesn't make any sense. Sharks are big and scary. And he goes, no, if you catch a shark while it's small and you put it in a, in a smaller aquarium, it will stay a, the size proportionate to its own surroundings. He said, I couldn't believe it. He said, sharks can be six inches long and yet be fully matured. But if you turn them loose in the ocean, they grow to uh, eight feet and beyond. This also happens to some Christians, right? I have seen some of the cutest little six-inch Christians just swimming around in their puddle. I'm happy. I'm obeying the rules. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm doing just fine. And they sit nice and neat in their little church aquarium. All the while, they're missing the beautiful, exciting, wild, unpredictable world beyond that God is calling us out to. If you want to grow, if you want to be who God has called you to be, and if you want to fall in love with Jesus in a new way, you got to leave here and you got to be the church out there. Just attending church doesn't make you a runner. Running does. Point number three in your notes. Christ followers should be known by their love for others. This is reiterated throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, Colossians 3.14 says this, above all else, clothe yourselves in love. Above everything else, above all else, clothe yourselves in love. And it's inconvenient. In the scriptures, love is never an emotion or a feeling. It's always a decision, a commitment towards sacrificial action. Love is the Jesus-looking choice to relate to someone as infinitely valuable because they are. Love is emotion. And with every emotion, the more you practice it, the more natural it becomes. It should be the defining characteristic of our spirituality. Um, this is best illustrated by the story of a mouse trap. A mouse looked through the crack in the wall and he saw the farmer opening up this new bag and he thought, what treat must this be? And he watches and his eyes pierce the bag and the farmer pulls out a giant mouse trap, and the mouse begins to freak out. He doesn't know what to do. He's scared. So he runs to the barn and he finds the chicken and he says, Mr. Chicken, there's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. And the chicken says, well, surely that's a concern for you, but it's of no concern for me. Someone else will help. So then the mouse runs to the pig. He says, Mr. Pig, there's a mouse trap in the house. He says, I'm very sorry, Mr. Mouse. There's nothing I can do about it. Maybe somebody else can step in. The mouse then turned to the cow and he says, please, there's a mouse trap in the house. And Mr. Cow says, that's a big deal for you. It's not a big deal for me. Sorry. So the mouse left, went back to that farmhouse, dejected and lonely. And that night, the sound of a snap, the sound of a trap catching its prey snaps throughout the barn. And so the farmer's wife wakes up in the middle of the night to go check on the trap, but it wasn't a mouse caught in the trap. It was a poisonous snake whose tail got trapped. And the poisonous snake bit the farmer's wife and she became very sick. And we all know that when you're sick, you treat a fever with fresh chicken noodle soup. And so the farmer went out to the barn and he got the main ingredients for that chicken noodle soup and slaughtered the chicken. 
But the woman, she didn't get well. In fact, she got a little bit worse. And so people came over to be with her all the time. And so the far, farmer then had to go into the farm and butcher the pig to feed all the people coming over to the house. And the woman continued and didn't get well. In fact, that she passed. And so they, at, they held the funeral and all the village came and they had to go to the, far, the barn and butcher the cow to feed all the people coming over to the house. So the next time you hear that someone is facing a problem, and you think it doesn't concern you, remember that when the least of us is threatened, we're all at risk. It's never convenient to love others. When you love, benefits accrue to the other's account at the expense of self. Love is for you, not for me. Love is selfless, not selfish. Love is, love is costly. It's expensive. It gives, it doesn't take. It's sacrificial action. We must act, we must serve, we must forgive, we must love. Above all else, clothe yourselves in love. Jesus says that you will know they're my disciples by their t-shirts that they wear. But Jesus says you'll, be, you'll know that they're my disciples by how many services on Sunday they attend and serve at and also the circle groups throughout the week. No, Jesus says you will know that they are my disciples by their love. It's an action, it's a motion, it's something that we do, it's something that's inconvenient, it's something that's difficult. It should be the defining aspect of our spiritual lives. Now I've heard people say love is good, I agree, love is good. We should love, but we gotta be balanced. God's loving, but he's also a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness, he's a God of holiness. Everything's gotta be balanced. Uh, folks, if, every, if love is above everything else like First Colossians teaches, it's not to be balanced by anything because unless your sense of justice is under God's love, then what you think is justice is not actually justice. If you take God's justice and you separate it from God's love or you put it alongside of God's love, then your justice will simply become a self-righteous moralism. And if you take God's holiness... And if it's not governed by God's love, if it's not underneath the love of God, your holiness will become a destructive legalism. The truth is that there's no greater manifestation of God's justice than on Calvary's cross. And there's no greater manifestation of God's holiness than on Calvary, Jesus dying and forgiving the ones who are nailing him to the cross with his last dying breath. That's love. It's all about love. I want to invite the worship band to come up and I'll close with this powerful Jewish fable. It's not scripture, but it, this story arose during the time the scriptures began to be written down. It goes a long time ago when the earth was still young, two brothers shared a field and a mill. Each night dividing the grain that they had ground together, one brother lived alone. The other brother had a wife and a large family. Now the single brother thought to himself one day, it isn't fair that we divide the grain evenly. I have only myself to care for, yet my brother has his wife and his entire family. And so each night he would sneak into his own mill and grab a bunch of his grain and place it in his brother's mill. And the, old, the other brother thought to himself each night, it isn't fair that when I'm old, I have all these people to take care of me and my brother has none. And so each night he would sneak into his own mill and grab a bunch of the grain and place it in his brother's mill. As a result, both of them always found their supply of grain mysteriously replenished each morning. Then one night, they met each other halfway between their two houses. They suddenly realized what had been happened, happening all these years, and they embraced each other in love. 
And the legend is that God witnessed their meeting and proclaimed, this is a holy place, a place of love. And it is here that my temple shall be built. And so it was the first temple is said to have been constructed on that very site. Love is emotion. It's something you do, not something you feel. Who's the Lord calling you to love this morning? Maybe in your own heart right now, you've had a judgmental spirit and the spirit of God is saying, wake up to your thoughts, bless rather than judge. Perhaps you've secluded yourself to your own world or your own aquarium and the Lord is calling you out of that comfort zone into the arms of a loving father. Maybe the Lord was onto something when he said that the greatest commandments are this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Everyone, even your enemies. Love is practical. It's not something you feel for someone. It's something that you do for someone. It's a decision. You do love until you feel love. And for some of you in your marriages, that's what God's saying to you right now. You do love until you feel love. And just so you know, on the other side of that, that's where the real magic is. You can refall in love with your spouse. Those of you who are struggling in your marriages, you can refall in love with your spouse. It's not something you force, but you do love until you feel love. And God wants to take your marriage to a new height. Who's God calling you to love? What is God speaking to you? How is God calling you out into the wild, away from the aquarium, out into the wild, vibrant, unpredictable world to be a force for the kingdom of God.